Chapter thirty nine of the Queen of Hearts. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Susan Smith Nash, Tulsa, Oklahoma. The Queen of Hearts by Wilkie Collins. Chapter thirty nine. Part one. Brother Owen's story of Anne Rodway taken from her diary march third eighteen forty a long letter to-day from robert which surprised and vexed me so that i have been sadly behindhand with my work ever since he writes in worse spirits than last time and absolutely declares that he is poorer even than when he went to america and that he has made up his mind to come home to london how happy I should be at this news, if he only returned to me a prosperous man. As it is, though I love him dearly, I cannot look forward to the meeting him again, disappointed and broken down and poorer than ever, without a feeling almost of dread for both of us. I was twenty-six last birthday, and he was thirty-three, and there seems less chance now than ever of our being married. It is all I can do to keep myself by my needle, and his prospects, since he failed in the small stationery business three years ago, are worse, if possible, than mine. Not that I mind so much for myself. Women in all ways of life, and especially in my dressmaking way, learn, I think, to be more patient than men. What I dread is Robert's despondency, and the hard struggle he will have in this cruel city to get his bread, let alone making money enough to marry me. So little as poor people want to set up in housekeeping and be happy together, it seems hard that they can't get it when they are honest and hardy and willing to work. The clergyman said in his sermon last Sunday evening that all things were ordered for the best, and we are all put into the stations in life that are properest for us. I suppose he was right, being a very clever gentleman who fills the church to crowding, but I think I should have understood him better if I had not been very hungry at the time, in consequence of my own station in life being nothing but plain needlewoman. March 4th. Mary Mallinson came down to my room to take a cup of tea with me. I read her bits of Robert's letter to show her that, if she has her troubles, I have mine too, but I could not succeed in cheering her. She says she is born to misfortune, and that as long back as she can remember she has never had the least morsel of luck to be thankful for. I told her to go and look in my glass, and to say if she had nothing to be thankful for then, for Mary is a very pretty girl, and would look still prettier if she could be more cheerful and dress neater. However, my compliment did no good. She rattled her spoon impatiently in her teacup and said, if I was only as good a hand at needlework as you are, I would change faces 
with the ugliest girl in london not you says i laughing she looked at me for a moment and shook her head and was out of the room before i could get up and stop her she always runs off in that way when she is going to cry having a kind of pride about letting other people see her tears march fifth a fright about mary i had not seen her all day as she does not work at the same place where i do and in the evening she never came down to have tea with me or she sent me word to go to her so just before i went to bed i ran upstairs to say good-night she did not answer when i knocked and when i stepped softly in the room i saw her in bed asleep with her work not half done lying about the room in the untidiest way there was nothing remarkable in that and i was just going away on tiptoe when a tiny bottle and wine-glass on the chair by her bedside caught my eye i thought she was ill and had been taking physic and i looked at the bottle it was marked in large letters laudanum poison my heart gave a jump as if it was going to fly out of me i laid hold of her with both hands and shook her with all my might she was sleeping heavily and woke slowly as it seemed to me but still she did wake i tried to pull her out of bed having heard that people ought to be always walked up and down when they have taken laudanum but she resisted and pushed me away violently Anne, says she in a fright for gracious sake what's come to you are you out of your senses oh mary mary says i holding up the bottle before her if i hadn't come in when i did and i laid hold of her to shake her again she looked puzzled at me for a moment and smiled for the first time i had seen her do so for many a long day then put her arms round my neck don't be frightened about me anne she says i am not worth it and there is no need no need says i out of breath no need when the bottle has got poison marked on it poison dear if you take it at all says mary looking at me very tenderly and a night's rest if you only take a little i watched her for a moment doubtful whether i ought to believe what she said or to alarm the house but there was no sleepiness now in her eyes nothing drowsy in her voice and she sat up in bed quite easily without anything to support her you have given me a dreadful fright mary says i sitting down by her in the chair and beginning by this time to feel rather faint after being startled so she jumped out of bed to get me a drop of water and kissed me said how sorry she was and how undeserving of so much interest being taken in her at the same time she tried to possess herself of the laudanum bottle which i still kept cuddled up tight in my own hands no says i you have got into a low-spirited despairing way i won't trust you with it 
"'I'm afraid I can't do without it,' says Mary, in her usual quiet, hopeless voice. "'What with work that I can't get through as I ought, and troubles that I can't help thinking of, sleep won't come to me, unless I take a few drops out of that bottle. Don't keep it away from me, Anne. It's the only thing in the world that makes me forget myself.' "'Forget yourself!' says I. You have no right to talk in that way at your age. There's something horrible in the notion of a girl of eighteen sleeping with a bottle of laudanum by her bedside every night. We all of us have our troubles. Haven't I got mine? You can do twice the work I can, twice as well as me, says Mary. You are never scolded and rated out for awkwardness with your needle and I always am. You can pay for your room every week, and I am three weeks in debt for mine. A little more practice, said I, and a little more courage, and you will soon do better. You've got all your life before you. I wish I was at the end of it, says she, breaking in. I am alone in the world and my life's no good to me. You ought to be ashamed of yourself for saying so, says I. Haven't you got me for a friend? Didn't I take a fancy to you when you first left your stepmother and came to lodge in this house? And haven't I been sisters with you ever since? Suppose you are alone in the world. Am I much better off? I'm an orphan like you. I've almost as many things in pawn as you, and if your pockets are empty, mine have only got ninepence in them to last me for all the rest of the week. Your father and mother were honest people, says Mary obstinately. My mother ran away from her home and died in a hospital. My father was always drunk and always beating me. My stepmother is as good as dead for all she cares about me. My only brother is thousands of miles away in foreign parts, and never writes to me, and never helps me with a farthing. My sweetheart, she stopped, and the red flew into her face. I knew if she went on that way, she would only get to the saddest part of her sad story, and to give both herself and me unnecessary pain. My sweetheart is too poor to marry me, Mary. I said, so I am not so much to be envied even there. But let's give over disputing which is worst off. Lie down in bed, and let me tuck you up. I'll put a stitch or two into that work of yours while you go to sleep. Instead of doing what I told her, she burst out crying, being very like a child in some of her ways, and hugged me so tight round the neck that she quite hurt me. I let her go on till she had worn herself out and was obliged to lie down. Even then, her last few words before she dropped off to sleep were such as I was half sorry, half frightened to hear. I won't plague you long, Anne, she said. I haven't courage to go out of the world, as you seem to fear I shall. But I began my life wretchedly, and wretchedly, I am sentenced to end it. 
it was no use lecturing her again for she closed her eyes i tucked her up as neatly as i could and put her petticoat over her for the bedclothes were scanty and her hands felt cold she looked so pretty and delicate as she fell asleep that it quite made my heart ache to see her after such talk as we had held together i just waited long enough to be quite sure that she was in the land of dreams then emptied the horrible laudanum bottle into the grate took up her half-done work and going out softly left her for that night march sixth sent off a long letter to robert begging and entreating him not to be so downhearted and not to leave america without making another effort i told him i could bear any trial except the wretchedness of seeing him come back a helpless broken-down man trying uselessly to begin life again when too old for a change it was not till after i had posted my own letter and read over part of robert's again that the suspicion suddenly floated across me for the first time that he might have sailed for england immediately after writing to me there were expressions in the letter which seemed to indicate that he had some such headlong project in his mind and yet surely if it were so i ought to have noticed them at the first reading i can only hope i am wrong in my present interpretation of much of what he has written to me hope it earnestly for both our sakes this has been a doleful day for me i have been uneasy about robert and uneasy about mary my mind is haunted by those last words of hers i began my life wretchedly and wretchedly i am sentenced to end it her usual melancholy way of talking never produced the same impression on me that i feel now perhaps the discovery of the laudanum bottle is the cause of this i would give many a hard day's work to know what to do for mary's good my heart warmed to her when we first met in the same lodging-house two years ago and although i am not one of the over-affectionate sort myself i feel as if i could go to the world's end to serve that girl yet strange to say if i was asked why i was so fond of her i don't think i should know how to answer the question march seventh i am almost ashamed to write it down even in this journal which no eyes but mine ever look on yet i must honestly confess to myself that here i am at nearly one in the morning sitting up in a state of serious uneasiness because mary has not yet come home i walked with her this morning to the place where she works and tried to lead her into talking of the relations she has got who are still alive my motive in doing this was to see if she dropped anything in the course of conversation which might suggest a way of helping her interests with those who are bound to give her all reasonable assistance but the little i could get her to say to me 
led to nothing instead of answering my questions about her stepmother and her brother she persisted at first in the strangest way in talking of her father who was dead and gone and of one noah truscott who had been the worst of all the bad friends he had had and had taught him to drink and game when i did get her to speak of her brother she only knew that he had gone out to a place called assam where they grew tea how he was doing or whether he was still there she did not seem to know never having heard a word from him for years and years past as for her stepmother mary not unnaturally flew into a passion the moment i spoke of her she keeps an eating-house at hammersmith and could have given mary good employment in it but she seems always to have hated her and to have made her life so wretched with abuse and ill-usage that she had no refuge left but to go away from home and do her best to make a living for herself her husband mary's father appears to have behaved badly to her and after his death she took the wicked course of revenging herself on her stepdaughter i felt after this that it was impossible mary could go back and that it was the hard necessity of her position as it is of mine that she should struggle on to make a decent livelihood without assistance from any of her relations i confessed as much as this to her but i added that i would try to get her employment with the persons for whom i work who pay higher wages and show a little more indulgence to those under them than the people to whom she is now obliged to look for support i spoke much more confidently than i felt about being able to do this and left her as i thought in better spirits than usual she promised to be back to-night to tea at nine o'clock and now it is nearly one in the morning and she is not at home yet if it was any other girl i should not feel uneasy for i should make up my mind that there was extra work to be done in a hurry and that they were keeping her late and that i should go to bed but mary is so unfortunate in everything that happens to her and her own melancholy talk about herself keeps hanging on my mind so that i have fears on her account which would not distress me about any one else it seems inexcusably silly to think such a thing much more to write it down but i have a kind of nervous dread upon me that some accident what does that loud knocking at the street door mean and those voices and heavy footsteps outside some lodger who has lost his key i suppose and yet my heart what a coward i become all of a sudden more knocking and louder voices i must run to the door and see what it is oh mary mary i hope i am not going to have another fright about you but i feel sadly like it march eighth march ninth 
March 10th. March 11th. Oh, me! All the troubles I have ever had in my life are as nothing to the trouble I am in now. For three days I have not been able to write a single line in this journal, which I have kept so regularly ever since I was a girl. For three days I have not once thought of Robert, I, who am always thinking of him at other times. My poor, dear, unhappy Mary, the worst I feared for you on that night when I sat up alone was far below the dreadful calamity that has really happened. How can I write about it, with my eyes full of tears, and my hand all of a tremble? I don't even know why I am sitting down at my desk now, unless it is habit that keeps me to my old, everyday task, in spite of all the grief and fear which seem to unfit me entirely for performing it. The people of the house were asleep and lazy on that dreadful night, and I was the first to open the door. Never, never could I describe in writing, or even say in plain talk, though it is so much easier, what I felt when I saw two policemen come in, carrying between them what seemed to me to be a dead girl, and that girl Mary. I caught hold of her and gave a scream that must have alarmed the whole house, for frightened people came crowding downstairs in their nightdresses. There was a dreadful confusion and noise of loud talking, but I heard nothing and saw nothing till I had got her into my room and laid on my bed. I stooped down, frantic-like, to kiss her and saw an awful mark of a blow on the left temple and felt, at the same time, a feeble flutter of her breath on my cheek. The discovery that she was not dead seemed to give me back my senses again. I told one of the policemen where the nearest doctor was to be found and sat down by the bedside while he was gone and bathed her poor head with cold water. She never opened her eyes, or moved, or spoke. But she breathed, and that was enough for me, because it was enough for life. The policeman left in the room was a big, thick-voiced, pompous man, with a horrible, unfeeling pleasure in hearing himself talk before an assembly of frightened, silent people. He told us how he had found her, as if he had been telling a story in a tap-room, and began with saying, "'I don't think the young woman was drunk.' "'Drunk! My Mary, who might have been born lady for all the spirits she ever touched, drunk!' I could have struck the man for uttering the word, with her lying, poor, suffering angel, so white and still, and helpless before him. As it was, I gave him a look, but he was too stupid to understand it, and went droning on, saying the same thing over and over in the same words. And yet, the story of how they found her 
was like all sad stories i have ever heard told in real life so very very short they had just seen her lying along the curbstone a few streets off and had taken her to the station-house there she had been searched and one of my cards that i gave to the ladies who promised me employment had been found in her pocket and so they had brought her to our house this was all the man really had to tell there was nobody near her when she was found and no evidence to show how the blow on her temple had been inflicted what a time it was before the doctor came and how dreadful to hear him say after he had looked at her that he was afraid all the medical men in the world could be of no use here he could not get her to swallow anything and the more he tried to bring her back to her senses the less chance there seemed of his succeeding he examined the blow on her temple and said he thought she must have fallen down in a fit of some sort and struck her head against the pavement and so have given her brain what he was afraid was a fatal shake i asked what was to be done if she showed any return to sense in the night he said send for me directly and stopped for a little while afterward stroking her head gently with his hand and whispering to himself oh, poor girl so young and so pretty i had felt some minutes before as if i could have struck the policeman and i felt now as if i could have thrown my arms round the doctor's neck and kissed him i did put out my hand when he took up his hat and he shook it in the friendliest way don't hope my dear he said and went out the rest of the lodgers followed him all silent and shocked except the inhuman wretch who owns the house and lives in idleness on the high rents he wrings from poor people like us she's three weeks in my debt says he with a frown and an oath where the devil is my money to come from now brute brute i had a long cry alone with her that seemed to ease my heart a little she was not the least changed for the better when i had wiped away the tears and could see her clearly again i took up her right hand which lay nearest to me it was tight clenched i tried to unclasp the fingers and succeeded after a little time something dark fell out of the palm of her hand as i straightened it i picked the thing up and smoothed it out and saw that it was an end of a man's cravat a very old rotten dingy strip of black silk with thin lilac lines all blurred and deadened with dirt running across and across the stuff in a sort of trellis-work pattern the small end of the cravat was hemmed in the usual way but the other end was all jagged as if the morsel then in my hand had been torn off violently from the rest of the stuff a chill ran all over me as i looked at it for that poor stained crumpled end of a cravat seemed to be saying to me 
as though it had been in plain words if she dies she has come to her death by foul means and i am the witness of it i had been frightened enough before lest she should die suddenly and quietly without my knowing it while we were alone together but i got into a perfect agony now for fear this last worst affliction should take me by surprise i don't suppose five minutes passed all that woeful night through without my getting up and putting my cheek close to her mouth to feel if the faint breaths still fluttered out of it they came and went just the same as at first though the fright i was in often made me fancy they were stilled forever just as the church clocks were striking four i was startled by seeing the room door open it was only dusty sal as they called her in the house the maid of all work she was wrapped up in the blanket off her bed her hair was all tumbled over her face and her eyes were heavy with sleep as she came up to the bedside where i was sitting i've got two hours good before i begin to work says she in her hoarse drowsy voice and i've come to sit up and take my turn at watching her you lay down and get some sleep on the rug here's my blanket for you i don't mind the cold it will keep me awake you are very kind very very kind and thoughtful sally says i but i am too wretched in my mind to want sleep or rest or to do anything but wait where i am and try to hope for the best and then i'll wait too says sally i must do something if there's nothing to do but waiting i'll wait and she sat down opposite me at the foot of the bed and drew the blanket close round her with a shiver after working so hard as you do i'm sure you must want all the little rest you can get says i excepting only you says sally putting her heavy arm very clumsily but very gently at the same time round mary's feet and looking hard at the pale still face on the pillow excepting you she's the only soul in this house as never swore at me or gave me a hard word that i can remember when you made puddings on sundays and give her half she always give me a bit the rest of him calls me dusty sal excepting only you again she always called me sally as if she knowed me in a friendly way i ain't no good here but i ain't no harm neither and, and i shall take my turn at sitting up that's what i shall do she nestled her head down close at mary's feet as she spoke those words and said no more i once or twice thought she had fallen asleep but whenever i looked at her her heavy eyes were always wide open she never changed her position an inch till the church clocks struck six then she gave one little squeeze to mary's feet with her arm and shuffled out of the room without a word a minute or two after i heard her down below lighting the kitchen fire just as usual a little later the doctor stepped over before his breakfast time to see if there had been any change in the night 
he only shook his head when he looked at her as if there was no hope having nobody else to consult that i could put trust in i showed him the end of the cravat and told him of the dreadful suspicion that had arisen in my mind when i found it in her hand he must keep it carefully and produce it at the inquest he said i don't know though that it is likely to lead to anything that bit of stuff may have been lying on the pavement near her and her hand may have unconsciously clutched it when she fell was she subject to fainting fits not more so sir than other young girls who are hard-worked and anxious and weakly from poor living i answered i can't say that she might not have got that blow from a fall the doctor went on looking at her temple again i can't say that it presents any positive appearance of having been inflicted by another person it will be important however to ascertain what state of health she was in last night have you any idea where she was yesterday evening i told him where she was employed at work and said i imagined she must have been kept there later than usual i shall pass the place this morning said the doctor in going my rounds among my patients and i'll just step in and make some inquiries i thanked him and we parted just as he was closing the door he looked in again was she your sister he asked no sir only my dear friend he said nothing more but i heard him sigh as he shut the door softly perhaps he once had a sister of his own and lost her perhaps she was like mary in the face the doctor was hours gone away i began to feel unspeakably forlorn and helpless so much so as even to wish selfishly that robert might really have sailed from america and might get to london in time to assist and console me no living creature came into the room but sally the first time she brought me some tea the second and third times she only looked in to see if there was any change i glanced her eye toward the bed i had never known her so silent before it seemed almost as if this dreadful accident had struck her dumb i ought to have spoken to her perhaps but there was something in her face that daunted me and besides the fever of anxiety i was in began to dry up my lips as if they would never be able to shape any words again i was still tormented by that frightful apprehension of the past night that she would die without my knowing it die without saying one word to clear up the awful mystery of this blow and set the suspicions at rest for ever which i still felt whenever my eyes fell on the end of the old cravat at last the doctor came back i think you may safely clear your mind of any doubts to which that bit of stuff may have given rise he said she was as you supposed detained late by her employers and she fainted in the workroom they most unwisely and unkindly let her go home alone without giving her any stimulant as soon as she came to her senses again nothing is more probable under these circumstances 
than that she should faint a second time on her way here, a fall on the pavement, without any friendly arm to break it, might have produced even a worse injury than the injury we see. I believe that the only ill usage to which the poor girl was exposed was the neglect she met with in the workroom. "'You speak very reasonably, I own, sir,' said I, not yet quite convinced. "'Still, perhaps she may—' "'My poor girl, I told you not to hope,' said the doctor, interrupting me. He went to Mary, lifted up her eyelids, and looked at her eyes while he spoke, then added, "'If you still doubt how she came by that blow,' Do not encourage the idea that any words of hers will ever enlighten you. She will never speak again. Not dead. Oh, sir, don't say she's dead. She is dead to pain and sorrow, dead to speech and recognition. There is more animation in the life of the feeblest insect that flies than in the life that is left in her. When you look at her now, try to think that she is in heaven. That is the best comfort I can give you, after telling the hard truth. I did not believe him. I could not believe him. So long as she breathed at all, so long I was resolved to hope. Soon after the doctor was gone, Sally came in again and found me listening, if I may call it so, at Mary's lips. She went to where my little hand-glass hangs against the wall, took it down, and gave it to me. "'See if the breath marks it,' she said. Yes, her breath did mark it, but very faintly. Sally cleaned the glass with her apron and gave it back to me. As she did so, she half stretched out her hand to Mary's face, but drew it in again suddenly, as if she was afraid of soiling Mary's delicate skin with her hard, horny fingers. Going out, she stopped at the foot of the bed and scraped away a little patch of mud that was on one of Mary's shoes. Ah, uh, always used to clean the fire, said Sally, to save her hands from getting blacked. May I take em off now and clean em again? I nodded my head, for my heart was too heavy to speak. Sally took the shoes off with a slow, awkward tenderness, and went out. An hour or more must have passed, when, putting the glass over her lips again, I saw no mark on it. I held it closer and closer. I dulled it accidentally with my own breath, and cleaned it. I held it over her again. Oh, Mary, Mary, the doctor was right. I ought to have only thought of you in heaven. Dead? without a word, without a sign, without even a look to tell the true story of the blow that killed her. I could not call to anybody. I could not cry. I could not so much as put the glass down and give her a kiss for the last time. I don't know how long I had sat there with my eyes burning, my hands deadly cold, when Sally came in with the shoes cleaned and carried carefully in her apron for fear of a soil touching them. At the sight of that, I can write no more. My tears drop so fast on the paper that I can see nothing 
March 12th. She died on the afternoon of the 8th. On the morning of the 9th, I wrote, as in duty-bound, to her stepmother at Hammersmith. There was no answer. I wrote again. My letter was returned to me this morning, unopened. For all that woman cares, Mary might be buried with a pauperous funeral. But this shall never be if I pawn everything about me, down to the very gown that is on my back. The bare thought of Mary being buried by the workhouse gave me the spirit to dry my eyes and to go to the undertaker's and tell him how I was placed. I said, if he would get me an estimate of all that would have to be paid from first to last for the cheapest decent funeral that could be had, I would undertake to raise the money. He gave me the estimate, written in this way, like a common bill. A walking funeral complete. Pounds, one, thirteen, eight. Vestry, zero, four, four. Rector, zero, four, four. Clark, zero, one, o. Oh. Sexton, zero, one, o. Oh. Beetle, zero, one, o. Oh. Bell, zero, one, o. Oh. Six feet of ground, zero. Two o, total pounds two eight four. If I had the heart to give any thought to it, I should be inclined to wish that the church could afford to do without so many small charges for burying poor people to whose friends even shillings are of consequence. But it is useless to complain. The money must be raised at once, and the charitable doctor, a poor man himself or he would not be living in our neighborhood, has subscribed ten shillings toward the expense, and the coroner, when the inquest was over, added five more. Perhaps others may assist me. If not, I have, fortunately, clothes and furniture of my own to pawn, and I must set about parting with them without delay, for the funeral is to be to-morrow, the thirteenth. The funeral! Mary's funeral! It is well that the straits and difficulties I am in keep my mind on the stretch. If I had leisure to grieve, where should I find the courage to face to-morrow? Thank God they did not want me at the inquest. The verdict given, with the doctor, the policeman, and two persons from the place where she worked for witnesses, was accidental death. The end of the cravat was produced, and the coroner said, that it was certainly enough to suggest suspicion. But the jury, in the absence of any positive evidence, held to the doctor's notion that she had fainted and fallen down, and so got the blow to her temple. They reproved the people where Mary worked for letting her go home alone without so much as a drop of brandy to support her after she had fallen into a swoon from exhaustion before their eyes. The coroner added, on his own account, that he thought the reproof was thoroughly deserved. After that, the cravat end was given back to me by my own desire, the police saying that they could make no investigations with such a slight clue to guide them. They may think so, and the coroner, and doctor, and jury may think so but in spite of all that has passed i am 
now more firmly persuaded than ever that there is some dreadful mystery in connection with that blow on my poor lost mary's temple which has yet to be revealed and which may come to be discovered through this very fragment of a cravat that i found in her hand i cannot give any good reason for why i think so but i know that if i had been one of the jury at the inquest nothing should have induced me to consent to such a verdict as accidental death after i had pawned my things and had begged a small advance of wages at the place where i would work to make up what was still wanting to pay for mary's funeral i thought i might have had a little quiet time to prepare myself as i best could for to-morrow but this was not to be when i got home the landlord met me in his passage he was in liquor and more brutal and pitiless in his way of looking and speaking than ever i saw him before so you're going to be fool enough to pay for her funeral are you were his first words to me i was too weary and heartsick to answer i only tried to get to my own door if you can pay for burying her he went on putting himself in front of me you can pay her lawful debts she owes me three weeks rent suppose you raise the money for that rent and hand it over to me i'm not joking i can promise you i mean to have my rent and if somebody don't pay it i'll have her body seized and sent to the workhouse between terror and disgust i thought i should have dropped to the floor at his feet but i determined not to let him see how he had horrified me if i could possibly control myself so i mustered resolution enough to answer that i did not believe the law gave him any such wicked power over the dead i'll teach you what the law is he broke in you'll raise money to bury her like a barn lady when she's died in my debt will you and you think i'll let my rights be trampled upon like that do you see if i do i'll give you till to-night to think about it if i don't have the three weeks she owes me before to-morrow dead or alive she shall go to the workhouse this time i managed to push by him and get to my own room and to lock the door in his face as soon as i was alone i fell into a breathless suffocating fit of crying that seemed to be shaking me to pieces but there was no good and no help in tears i did my best to calm myself after a little while and tried to think who i should run to for help and protection the doctor was the first friend i thought of but i knew he was always out seeing his patients of an afternoon the beetle was the next person who came into my head he had the look of being a very dignified unapproachable kind of man when he came about the inquest but he talked to me a little then and said i was a good girl and seemed i really thought to pity me so to him i determined to apply in my great danger and distress most fortunately i found him at home when i told him of the landlord's infamous threats and of the misery i was suffering in consequence of them 
he rose up with a stamp of his foot and sent for his gold-laced cocked hat that he wears on Sundays and his long cane with the ivory top to it. "'I'll give it to him,' said the beetle. "'Come along with me, dear. "'I think I told you you were a good girl at the inquest. "'If I didn't, I'd tell you so now. "'I'll give it to him. "'Come along with me.' "'And he went out, striding on with his cocked hat and his great cane. "'And I followed him. "'Landlord!' he cries, the moment he gets into the passage, "'with a thump of his cane on the floor. "'Landlord!' with a look all around him as if he was the king of england calling to a beast to come out the moment the landlord came out and saw who it was his eye fixed on the cocked hat and he turned as pale as ashes how dare you frighten this poor girl says the beetle how dare you bully her at this sorrowful time with threatening to do what you know you can't do how dare you be a cowardly bullying braggadocio of an unmanly landlord don't talk to me i won't hear you i'll pull you up sir if you say another word to the young woman i'll pull you up before the authorities of this metropolitan parish i've had my eyes on you and the authorities have had their eye on you and the rector has had his eye on you we don't like the look of your small shop around the corner. We don't like the look of some of the customers who deal at it. We don't like disorderly characters, and we don't, by any manner of means, like you. Go away. Leave the young woman alone. Hold your tongue, or I'll pull you up. If he says another word or interferes with you again, my dear, come and tell me and as sure as he's a bullying unmanly braggadocio of a landlord i'll pull him up with those words the beetle gave a loud cough to clear his throat and another thump of his cane on the floor and so went striding out again before i could open my lips to thank him the landlord slunk back into his room without a word i was left alone and unmolested at last to strengthen myself for the hard trial of my poor love's funeral to-morrow march thirteenth it is all over a week ago her head rested on my bosom it is laid in the churchyard now the fresh earth lies heavy over her grave i and my dearest friend the sister of my love are parted in this world forever I followed her funeral alone through the cruel, hustling streets. Sally, I thought, might have offered to go with me, but she never so much as came into my room. I did not like to think badly of her for this, and I am glad I restrained myself, for when we got into the churchyard, among the two or three people who were standing by the open grave, I saw Sally in her ragged, gray shawl and her patched black bonnet she did not seem to notice me till the last words of the service had been read and the clergyman had gone away then she came up and spoke to me i couldn't follow along with you she said looking at her ragged shawl for i hadn't a decent suit of clothes to walk in i wish i could get vent in for crying for her like you 
but i can't all the crying's been drudged and starved out of me long ago don't you think about lighting your fire when you get home i'll do that and i'll get you a drop of tea to comfort you she seemed on the point of saying a kind word or two more when seeing the beetle coming toward me she drew back as if she were afraid of him and left the churchyard here's my subscription toward the funeral said the beetle giving me back his shilling fee don't say anything about it for it mightn't be approved of in a business point of view if it came to some people's ears has the landlord said anything more to you no i thought not he's too polite a man to give me the trouble of pulling him up stop crying here my dear take the advice of a man familiar with funerals and go home i tried to take his advice but it seemed like deserting mary to go away when all the rest forsook her i waited about till the earth was thrown in and the man had left the place then i returned to the grave oh how bare and cruel it was without so much as a bit of green turf to soften it oh how much harder it seemed to live than to die when i stood alone looking at the heavy piled-up lumps of clay and thinking of what was hidden beneath them i was driven home by my own despairing thoughts the sight of sally lighting the fire in my room eased my heart a little when she was gone i took up robert's letter again to keep my mind employed on the only subject in the world that has any interest for it now this fresh reading increased the doubts i had already felt relative to his having remained in america after writing me my grief and forlornness have made a strange alteration in my former feelings about his coming back i seem to have lost all my prudence and self-denial and to care so little about his poverty and so much about himself that the prospect of his return is really the only comforting thought i have now to support me i know this is weak in me and that his coming back can lead to no good result for either of us but he is the only living being left to me to love and i can't explain it but i want to put my arms round his neck and tell him about mary march fourteenth i locked up the end of the cravat in my writing-desk no change in the dreadful suspicions that the bare sight of it rouses in me i tremble if i so much as touch it march fifteenth sixteenth seventeenth work 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 if i don't knock up i shall be able to pay back the advance in another week and then with a little more pinching in my daily expenses i may succeed in saving a shilling or two to get some turf to put over mary's grave and perhaps even a few flowers besides to grow round it march eighteenth thinking of robert all day long does this mean he is really coming back if it does reckoning the distance he is at from new york and the time ships take to get to england i might see him by the end of april or the beginning of may march nineteenth i don't remember my mind running once on the end of the cravat yesterday and i am certain 
I never looked at it, yet I had the strangest dream concerning it at night. I thought it was lengthened into a long clue, like the silken thread that led to Rosamond's bower. I thought I took hold of it and followed it a little way, and then got frightened and tried to go back, but found that I was obliged, in spite of myself, to go on. It led me through a place like the valley of the shadow of death, in an old print I remember in my mother's copy of the Pilgrim's Progress. I seemed to be months and months following it without any respite, till, at last, it brought me, on a sudden, face to face with an angel whose eyes were like Mary's. He said to me, Go on, still, the truth is at the end, waiting for you to find it. I burst out crying, for the angel had Mary's voice as well as Mary's eyes, and woke with my heart sobbing and my cheeks all wet. What is the meaning of this? Is it always superstitious, I wonder, to believe that dreams may come true? End of chapter 39